The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? <laughs> you see the people crowding around you? The disciples answered, <laughs> you're asking who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, yesterday morning, I had the pleasure of being at our cathedral, where Bishop Sutton ordained five new priests into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I got to say, it was wonderful to be in a church that was full. I mean, it felt full. It probably was half full. But to be in a church where everybody was together, we were all able to sing behind our masks. I am so looking forward to when we're able to get things back to something approaching normal. And it certainly was not normal there. We still were only receiving the bread. Uh, I, I, knowing some of the people involved, I can imagine the conversation. Uh, Mark, I'm a little hot. Can you turn me down a bit? Uh, I can imagine some of the conversations and negotiations about how many, how many hymns would be programmed and, and, uh, and what elements might be jettisoned. Uh, so when, when we arrived uh, at the cathedral, uh, they had, like we have in the back of our church, a, an offering plate 
in, uh, right as you, as you come in that would go to the discretionary funds of these new priests, um, which means that Bishop Eugene did not get to say his usual line when it's time for the offering. Usually he says, this is the funnest part of the service, and I want you to give until it makes you feel happy. But he didn't get to do any of that. He just said, walk in love as Christ loved us. Soon he'll be able to do that again. But when, when Bishop Eugene says, give until it makes you feel happy, that's kind of a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where Paul says, each person should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as we look at this particular verse, I have to say it's one of those verses that I have often seen misunderstood and therefore misapplied, right? So if God loves a cheerful giver, and if I'm not feeling especially cheerful, does that mean I shouldn't give? Or if God loves a cheerful giver, if, I'm, if I am giving, and I'm giving faithfully, but I don't always fear, feel cheerful about it, is there something wrong with me? Does God love me less if I don't have a big smile on my face when I write my check? I mean, there are churches, and you may have been to some of these, uh, especially in, in the African-American tradition, you have churches where people literally dance up the aisle bringing their offerings. They, they, have, uh, they have it so that you know, the, the choir brings theirs first, and they go all the way to the back and dance up, and then they can sing while everybody else is doing theirs. And then the last ones who come are the, the, the ushers, and they've got these white gloves, and they actually, it's, it's almost like choreographed. It's, it's fascinating to watch. Not the tradition I grew up in at all. I grew up UCC in, in New England. I mean, they would have you know, dropped dead if somebody tried to dance up uh, at the offering. But are we missing something if that's not our attitude when it comes time to give? Well, I, I think if we can understand all of what Paul is doing here in chapters 8 and 9 of Second of Corinthians, I think we can avoid a misunderstanding of that verse and also of another one that was in the reading today that Pat did that I think is also misunderstood and therefore uh, misapplied. So, before I go through these, these chapters, let me just give you the background. Uh, as, as you may remember, uh, Paul is taking up a collection here for the churches in Jerusalem. Uh, the church in Jerusalem uh, at the time was uh, severely persecuted uh, and very poor, and uh, in fact, not a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years. Today, the church in Jerusalem is persecuted and poor. That's one of the reasons that at Good Friday we take up the, the uh, presiding bishop's offering to give to the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem to support our brothers and sisters uh, in, in the Holy Land. Uh, and so uh, one of the reasons Paul did this, of course, is because there was need. But the other issue, as you may remember from Paul's story, is that he had a lot of people suspicious about him, specifically folks in Jerusalem, because Paul was bringing the gospel to all of these Gentiles. And you had all of these Gentiles who were coming into faith in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, but they weren't becoming Jewish first. So the Jewish believers in Jesus were a little wigged out by this and definitely suspicious of Paul because he kept doing this. So one of the things that Paul's doing with this collection is not just 
helping out some people in need, which would be great, but it's also kind of a way that he's proving his bona fides. It's a way that he's demonstrating that he is part of the team, and it's a way he's demonstrating that these Gentile churches are part of the team because they are supporting the folks in Jerusalem who are in need. Now, at the very end of 1 Corinthians, Paul actually sets this up in chapter 16. He says, about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me. So that's what was going on at the end of 1 Corinthians. And as you may remember from other parts of 1 Corinthians, there was a whole lot that was going on, a whole lot of business that, God, uh, that Paul needed to do with this wacky church in Corinth. Well, here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, some time has passed. And Paul notes in chapter 8, verse 10, he says, uh, so I got some more advice for you about what's best about this matter of the collection. You know, last year, you guys were the first to have the desire to give to this project. When I said I'm taking up a collection for the needy Christians in Jerusalem, you guys stepped right up and you made a big pledge. And then you didn't do anything else. Now, he says, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. And the Corinthian situation is compared, not favorably, with that of some other churches. Here at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul says, Now, my, my brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. These are the folks that Paul was writing to in his letter to the Philippians, where uh, he, he just uh, is so encouraged by their support of him, their generosity to him, their prayers for him. He says, out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Right? Testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, and entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So Paul wasn't even going to ask them. They, they were impoverished. They could have been people that Paul took up a collection for. In fact, maybe that was going to be Paul's next project after he'd completed the, the collection for Jerusalem. But, but in fact, they, they caught wind of what he was doing, and they insisted. They insisted that they be able to participate. Reminded of a story, Bishop, Ch Bishop uh, Chilton Knudsen, who was there yesterday, it was wonderful to see her again in action. She talked about when she visited the Diocese of Haiti, and she would go to these churches that are, were, were exceptionally poor. And, and, and they, they knew that she liked Sprite, so they'd gotten a six-pack of Sprite and ice, neither of which anybody there could afford. And they brought it to her, and she initially thought, oh, well, Give, give this to the children. Let them enjoy it. And, and, and the, the warden of the church said, Bishop, do, do, not, do not deny us the opportunity to be generous. So they said, no, Paul, don't deny us the opportunity to be generous. And, and Paul says, they didn't do what we expected. They actually gave themselves first to the Lord. And then they even gave more to us in keeping with God's will. 
So we urge Titus, who's on Paul's team since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. We know from the last chapter, Titus had made a visit to Corinth that was not an especially comfortable one because there were some matters that needed to be dealt with, and Titus was, in a sense, the enforcer. But just as you excel in everything, Paul says, you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So this is one of the places in Paul's letters where one person might say he's engaging in some rhetorical misdirection, and other people might say that he's just lying. Um, they don't excel in everything. They probably excel over everybody else in, in frustrating him. But no, they, they think of themselves as excellent. They think of themselves very, very highly. But they made this big pledge, and they haven't done anything about it. And so when Paul says, I'm not commanding you, well, as we'll see implicitly, he really is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, might, that, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so here's my advice about what's best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first to give, uh, not only but to, to give, but to have the desire to do so. So now finish the work, that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. The willingness is there, the gift's acceptable according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. And, and our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. I, I just want there to be equality. Right now, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. And then, then we'll have equality as it's written. He who gathered much didn't have too much, and he who gathered little didn't have too little. Now, some of my friends will look at this verse, and it's fascinating. Very, very progressive people all of a sudden turn into Bible-thumping wooden literalists. They say, Paul says there's supposed to be economic equality. It's not exactly what Paul is doing there. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, oh, I don't want other people to be relieved while you are hard-pressed. I just want things to be fair. He's telling this to a people who have absolutely no interest in things being equal or fair. He's telling this to a church that has means, that has wealth. Corinth, I mean, Corinth had really made the Roman Empire mad about 200 years before this letter. Uh, they got so mad that they just basically raised the town. And about 100 years later, they realized, no, that's actually a really strategic place to have a, 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 a city for, uh, for trade. So Everybody in Corinth was there, was new money. There were, there, there were people who had been ambitious. Entrepreneurs went to Corinth to try to make their way. And then, of course, all the people who come along with, with the, uh, the things that go on in port cities. There was actually a, uh, a very old Greek word to play the Corinthian, which meant to be sexually immoral. So, so the, there's not old money in Corinth. These are, these are people who have, who have found, many of them found great success, and others who are part of the church who who haven't part of the issue that we talk about back in 1 Corinthians 11. But this is not a church that has any reason to be worried at all about being hard-pressed while others are being advantaged. In fact, what Paul is implicitly pointing out is, in fact, others are hard-pressed, and you guys are advantaged. 
because they're bearing the load. This, the Macedonian Christians, these guys who don't have two pennies to rub together, are giving generously to support the needs of the church in Jerusalem, while you, who are wealthy, made a pledge, but you haven't done anything with it. He quotes the example of the, from the Old Testament, of the one gathering much didn't gather too much, the one gathering little didn't gather too little. It's from when God provided manna in the desert for his people. And the point there is not that everybody gathered exactly the same amount. The point is that people gathered what they needed, and people who needed more gathered more. Those who needed less gathered less, but God abundantly provided for what was needed. And so I thank God, Paul says, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Titus not only welcomed our appeal, catch this. But he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we're sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What's more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. You think about it, but back then you couldn't like Venmo somebody uh, a gift. This, had to, this money had to physically be carried from the uh, western end of, of Paul's operations out in Greece all the way over to Jerusalem. And, and we really, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In other words, Paul says, our cash handling procedures are entirely above board. So if any of you wants to say, well, I don't really trust that the money I give is actually going to get to Jerusalem, don't, don't even try that. And in addition, Paul says, we're sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they're representative of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Again, if you're thinking about saying, I, I don't know that I can really trust these guys. I don't know that they're really going to. No, actually, all the churches know them. All the churches trust them. And that's one guy, he actually doesn't have opposable thumbs and he doesn't understand when people don't have the money he's supposed to pick up. So, beginning of chapter 9, there's no need for me to write to you about service to the saints. Obviously, Paul once again is lying. There's every need for him to write to him because he's writing to them. But I know your eagerness to help. And, and guess what? Paul says, I have been bragging on you to the folks in Macedonia. I've been telling them that since last year, you guys were so ready to give, you stepped up first, and your enthusiasm stirred most of them to action. And so I'm sending these brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you'd be ready, as you said you would be. I mean, if any Macedonians were to come with me and to find you unprepared, oof, we, not to mention you, would be really embarrassed. That would be really awkward, wouldn't it? If they showed up, having been generous, and you guys didn't have a check ready. So I thought it'd be a good idea to urge the brothers to visit you in advance to finish the arrangement for the generous gift you'd promised, and then it'll be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Again, Paul knows full well that if they wanted to give and were enthusiastic about it, they would have done so already. 
he is quite prepared to extract a gift grudgingly given from them. So remember this, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Everybody should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, he's scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel in Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So I take from this, in addition to the fact that Paul is really clever, kind of like what he does in Philemon, where he he pretty much maneuvers the recipients of of, uh, his letter into doing the thing that they should do without telling them that they they have to do it. I want to take from this three basic principles about giving. And I preface that by saying these are principles I see abundantly here in our church. First is that giving should be regular. 1 Corinthians 16, what did Paul give as his recommendation? Well, you know, each week set aside what you get. Simple way to do that is every time you get, the che- get a check, you simply put aside a por- the portion of it that you intend to give. Now, some people's uh, money works a little differently. I just had dinner last night with a friend. He used to work for a firm that uh, bonused him at the end of the year. Every year, he got a very, very large bonus, and then the rest of the year was basically just enough to, to get by. So he made his gift to the church at the end of the year based on, on the bonus. And, uh, and that, that made perfect sense. Other people, your, uh, your income may be less regular. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a hard and fast rule that you absolutely have to, to do it that way, but the, the principle of giving regularly for most of us is one that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that's helpful about the Givelify app is you can set it up so that it automatically does the same draw every month or uh, on a different uh, schedule. So first, giving should be regular. Second is that giving should be proportional. As God says, the gift is according to what you have, not what you don't have. And I've had to have conversations with people who had been very, very faithful and generous, and then they encountered a, a significant change in, in their circumstances. They uh, maybe lost a job or had to take a job that paid a lot less. And so they, they felt bad because they wanted to keep giving it as they had been because they knew that, you know, that it was supporting the work of the church. And I had to say, no, as Paul says the gift is according to what you have, not what you don't have. So give generously as God leads you, but he's never going to lead you to give money you don't have. And finally, giving is worship and it provokes worship. Giving is worship, and it provokes worship. That's what Paul's talking about at the very end of chapter 9, about 
that's not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. I can tell you how much fun it has been for me as I, for one, as I reconnect with colleagues or as I talk with people and they say, how's it going and how did your church make it through the pandemic? Did you guys hold up? And I've been able to say, we were able to give away $18,000 to people in need in our community and around the world. And they say things like, thanks be to God. That's generosity eventuating in worship. And so, my brothers and sisters, my, my main word to you is keep it up. This is a church that is very, very healthy in this regard. I'm deeply grateful that I have the privilege of serving and giving alongside you. Amen.